Welcome to episode 279 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. This is the objects to observe in the December 22 night sky edition. I'm Chris and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers who love looking up at the night sky and this podcast is for anybody else who likes going out under the stars. And in this episode, we're going to talk about what you can see in the nighttime sky this month of December 2022. And for those who are listening on the 365 Days of Astronomy, one thing we thought we should mention is that um, if you look up the actual astronomy podcast in your podcast directory or podcatching software, you can catch eight episodes of us per month talking about what else you can see in the nighttime sky, amateur astronomy equipment, all things amateur astronomy related. Am I missing anything, Shane? <laughs> no, no, we uh, we do put out a lot of content. So if you like this episode, definitely check us out. There's uh, there's a lot more that we talk about every month. Yeah, and we're uh, we're pushing close to 300 episodes over the past two and a half years. <laughs> so we do this a lot. Yeah, we've got a few of them. <laughs> we've got a few, and we do. We are amateur astronomers. We do lots of our own observing. Um, even last night, uh, Shane was in, was in his backyard and I was out at my dedicated dark sky site that I bought last year. And uh, yeah, we've got our own uh, telescopes, our own gear, and we like to observe. And that's what we do. And we like sharing that with other folks. So please uh, join us if you haven't already. All right, Shane. So getting started in December of 2022, you know, Christmas is a really popular time for people to get interested or started in astronomy and if somebody is finding themselves with a little bit of free time maybe free time with the kids over the holidays how can they get uh, get going in amateur astronomy well um you know there's a there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of stuff up there and it's just really a matter of knowing where to look and what to look for um some things that we like to talk about is uh, just size and distance um, things, things that we'll talk about in this episode are like degrees, you know, the, like a certain planet might be a few degrees away from the moon. And one way mm -hmm. to understand what that distance is, is to use your fist. <laughs> so if you hold your fist or hold your arm out, uh, like extend it fully, make a fist. And then if you, um, go knuckle to knuckle, that's essentially 10 degrees. And, uh, mm -hmm. it's just the way we're all built proportionately that it sort of works for everybody. Um, one finger is one degree and, um, that just helps you kind of navigate around the sky a little bit. Um, some other things mm -hmm. that are important if you want to get going in astronomy, um, nothing beats a dark sky. So if you're able to get away from light pollution, that's a big advantage. Uh, if you are able to get away from light pollution, then there's another thing that's really important and that's the dark adaptation of your eyes. Um, now I think we all know this a little bit, like when you walk into a, a dark room, so you're, you know, the lights were on and all of a sudden you turn the lights off in your house. At first, you really can't see all that much, but then your eyes start to adapt to the darkness and you're able to see more stuff. Um, this happens out when you're doing astronomy as well, except one thing to note is that it takes 30 minutes approximately for your eyes to get mostly dark adapted. Um, and if you use like a white light or your cell phone, uh, there's a good chance you're going to reset the clock on that uh, time that it takes to get your eyes dark adapted. So we highly recommend using yeah. a red light, um, but also not a bright red light. Um, so the, the, the red spectrum helps preserve your night vision, but if it's too bright, it'll still impact it. So use a dim red light. Um, I mentioned you need to know where to look. So, you know, you need some sort of a star chart or a map. Uh, one that we like to uh, recommend is, uh, Terrence Dickinson, Terrence Dickinson's night watch. Um, it's great for beginners and people that have even been in the hobby for a little while. It'll help you locate constellations and then it'll help point you or show you which objects are visible in those constellations. And I think a lot mm -hmm. of it, you really can get away with just binoculars or even sometimes uh, no optical aid at all. Um, and then the last thing we do recommend is binoculars. Uh, I think a, a number of people, when they think of astronomy, they think that you must have a telescope. Um, certainly a telescope enhances a lot of views and can show you a lot of great things. Um, but binoculars are very effective and sometimes binoculars are preferred depending on what you're observing. 
Uh, so we really recommend using um, something like an 8x40 or a 7x35 uh, type of binocular. Um, and the reason for that is those are usually small enough that they fit well in your hands. They're not too heavy, so you don't get as fatigued. And it's uh, a lower magnification, around seven or eight times there, that um, it's easier to hold without like a lot of shakiness. If you have a 10 or 12 mm -hmm. times magnification in your binocular, uh, you probably will need some sort of a tripod. Otherwise, you might find it a little too shaky when you're looking through them. So so anyway, those are the recommendations if you want to get started in astronomy. Quick, quick question on that. Um, if somebody really wanted to get a telescope, maybe they've been trying binoculars for a while, um, you know, should they just kind of spin the wheel and, and order what they, they think is is a good telescope for them? Or what, what would be a good way for them to start down the path of actually purchasing a, a telescope if they, if they were really wanting to do that? Yeah, if you're interested in a telescope, um, we recommend that you go to a, like a telescope or astronomy store, somebody that's uh, specializing in that, uh, in, in the hobby. Um, and typically they'll give you great advice to match your budget as well as uh, what some of your goals are. Uh, we have a number of uh, previous episodes where we talk about buying your first telescope and different uh, designs of telescopes. You can listen to that as a reference. Um, there's the backyard observers guide by Terrence Dickinson and Alan Dyer, which is also a great resource. Um, and then another one that we always talk about, Chris, and you and I frequent is, is cloudynights.com. Uh, there's the stargazer mm -hmm. lounge, which is a more European focus. Um, there's a number of resources out there to assist you. And maybe the last one that I'll mention is if you have a local astronomy club, I highly recommend you join it because you'll be able to interact with the members. They'll give you all kinds of advice. And probably the best benefit is that um, often within a club, a number of the members will go out observing together and it allows you to go out with them and then maybe look through some of their telescopes and see what you really like. And, um, you know, that'll get you down the right path. Sounds good. So speaking of other places in the world, um, when we do our objects to observe in the sky each month, we're talking about them from the perspective of the North American amateur astronomer. And they may be um, somebody who's in a backyard in Saskatchewan like we are, or in Florida. Uh, we got uh, people even in, uh, you know, um, all kinds of other places. But if you're east or west of us, uh, east or west of North America or South America by any big measure, um, some of these days and times might shift because we're just giving it to you for the day and time sort of in the middle part of North America. But I know sometimes if it's the first here, um, say it's the first of December here in, in North America, um, this event might be occurring late at night um, on December 2nd, like if you're in um, the UK or, or in other parts of Europe. Yeah, great point. All right, so December 1st, Juno occultation. So uh, Juno, which is uh, a large asteroid in the asteroid belt, is going to have the moon pass in front of it. So that's uh, what an occultation is. An occultation just simply means the moon is passing in front of or occulting um, something else in the sky. And because the moon is very close to us, it frequently does pass in front of other things, as we're going to see later on in this episode. So 3 Juno is a large asteroid. It was the third asteroid discovered in 1804 by Carl Harding, and it is one of the 20 largest asteroids. And it's part of the uh, stony asteroids along with 15 Unumia, and uh, it contains about 1% of the total mass of the asteroid belt. Shane, do you have any of the stony meteorites? You're a bit of a meteorite uh, collector. Do you have any of the stony ones? Yeah, yeah, I do have a couple of them. Uh, I can't recall, like, each meteorite has a name based on where it was found typically. And <clears throat> excuse me, I can't recall which, uh, which named ones I have, but I do have some stony meteorites. So this one is, uh, it's the second largest of all the stony ones. And I know the stony ones are, are pretty, uh, pretty dominant. And it's named after the Roman goddess Juno, uh, the wife of Jupiter. So Juno has the uh, second most eccentric orbit of, uh, of over 200 uh, and is over 200 kilometers in length. And uh, it brings it uh, a little bit closer to the sun than Vesta. 
And Juno is uh, a main belt uh, object associated with many other asteroids. And uh, let's see, it's composed of uh, stones, and it was the first asteroid um, for which an occultation was ever observed. So anyway, we'll, uh, we'll move on. But you can actually see it. It's just below and to the right of Jupiter by about 15 degrees right now. And you can actually watch the moon pass in front of it on the evening of December 1st. We recommend uh, loading up some planetarium software like Sky Safari or Stellarium or something like that. I think Stellarium is free and, uh, and you can watch that play out. Have you ever seen the, the moon occult an asteroid before? Um, yeah, I'm trying to think which one this Vesta, uh, Vesta. Maybe, yeah, yes. a couple of years ago. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think we watched that. So yeah, it's pretty, pretty interesting. So you're seeing these two different objects in the solar system. The moon is really close. The asteroid is really far away, but still in our solar system. And, uh, you can really get a sense of, uh, how things are moving around overhead. Also on December 1st, or very early on the the 2nd of December for some observers uh, to our east, uh, Jupiter is going to be about three degrees above the moon. So depending on where you are, either on December 1st, late in the evening or, or early on the 2nd, uh, you're going to see the moon and Jupiter within five degrees. And so five degrees is about the smallest binocular field of view, give or take, that most people are going to have in a common handheld pair of binoculars. So you'll actually be able to see Jupiter and the moon. And uh, so Shane, if you look at Jupiter through a pair of binoculars, you can see some of its own moons. And it'd be pretty cool to see four moons of Jupiter and our moon all in the same binocular field of view at the same time. Yeah, yeah, the Galilean moons around Jupiter, so that's Io, Callisto, uh, Ganymede, and Europa, are all visible through binoculars. Um, so uh, depending on their alignment, sometimes they're all on one side, you know, sometimes it's three on one side and one on the other. Um, so they're they're kind of interesting to, um, to observe. Now, just to set expectations, they will basically look like stars. They'll just be points of light. Uh, but uh, Jupiter itself, you'll notice through binoculars, even it is substantially larger than those moons. Like you'll notice it's a, a big round circle compared to the, the moons around it. And then our moon in the same field of view would be a great observation. Yeah, that is going to be a really neat thing to see. So the other thing that's, uh, that's occurring is that we're going to have the uh, moon pass in front or occult Mars on the night of December 7th and 8th. And that is one of the reasons why I, when we started talking about the objects this month, I talked about a difference um, in the days and the times because we're in North America. And if you look it up um, on the internet, it's going to tell you that it's December 8th, which is true because it's December 8th universal time. But for us here in the middle of North America, Shane, this uh, this event really begins at around, I think it's about 7.30 for us, and it's going to vary depending on where you are in, in North America, but it's going to be on the evening of the 7th when the moon begins to pass in front of Mars. Yeah, that'll be another really neat observation. Yeah, so what's neat about this observation is that right now, Mars is in opposition with the Earth, and that just means that it's opposite um, the sun in our nighttime sky. So we have the sun in the daytime sky and then Mars is going to be at its highest point above our horizon locally around midnight for all of us. Um, and on the 8th of December, that is going to be the night when Mars is truly uh, opposite us in the nighttime sky. Although on December 1st is when Mars is going to be at its closest, but just due to like some orbital eccentricities we're not going to get into here, um, this is is uh, the night of opposition that is the the night of the seventh slash eighth and on this night of opposition the moon which will also be opposite in our nighttime sky is going to pass in front of mars and so you'll be able to watch this um through binoculars you can see it even with the unaided eye um but through a telescope you'll be able to watch that disc of mars uh, kind of gets swallowed up by the moon. And the one thing to keep in mind when you're watching one of these occultations, Shane, I don't know about you, I know I've talked to Mike about these before. I, I certainly enjoy looking at these occultations. 
um, it always seems like nothing is happening, that the two objects are just an insurmountable distance apart of the nighttime sky. But then during the last few minutes, it's like somebody hit the fast forward button and whew, things just get gobbled up really, really quick. I'm not sure what your experience has been though. Yeah. Any, any kind of solar system motion. So we mentioned the Galilean moons around Jupiter. Sometimes you can see them occult Jupiter, um, uh, a solar eclipse or a lunar eclipse, all of that stuff seems to take forever to build uh, until that moment where the occultation or the eclipse would take place. And when it gets close to that point, all of a sudden time really seems to speed up. So um, if yeah. you are hoping to observe uh, this occultation, it's uh, it's wise to be ready for that moment because you mm -hmm. may be lulled into a, a state of uh, complacency because it yeah. seems to be taking forever. Yeah, and uh, you know you might miss it if all of a sudden you're looking somewhere else around that uh, that time that it's actually occurring. Yeah, well, I'm really excited about this. Um, you and I reached uh, independently out observing Mars last night. And now we weren't out even under the best conditions. It was like an okay night, but this is going to be like an, like the average night. If, if anybody out there listening has a telescope, maybe for, for the first time, and they're going to be out um, trying to take a look at Mars for the first time. I think last night um, was sort of like the type of conditions most people are going to experience. eh? Yeah, exactly. And so maybe what we should do is simply preface uh, people with what they could expect to see uh, through a telescope. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, through a telescope on Mars, you would see some of the albedo features on, on the planet. So uh, Certus Major is probably one of the, the best known features, which is uh, like a darker surface area. Mm -hmm. um, you can sometimes see the polar cap or caps. Uh, so mm -hmm. there's polar, polar ice, both in the north and the south. Um, and then uh, the other things uh, that seem to be more apparent or at times are actual cloud on Mars, similar to what yeah. we have here on earth. In fact, Chris, the other night when you and I were both observing, um, and looking at Mars, we both noticed uh, on the Northern Northern, uh, region, like where the polar cap would be that there is an extensive cloud bank Yeah, and, uh, quite apparent. Um, and, and we're just using four inch telescopes. So, yeah. you know, a four inch telescope is quite modest. There's certainly much larger yep. telescopes out there. Um, and then the other thing that you can sometimes see is, uh, there's dust storms on Mars and they're not actually great to look at. Uh, but what they do is they sort of mask some of the other features, uh, that normally you would see on Mars. So those are just a few things. There's a lot more detail you can see. And I really recommend, um, if you are going to look at Mars through a telescope to, um, have a resource that, uh, lists all of the Martian features, surface features, mm -hmm. uh, that you can reference after your observation to see, uh, what you were able to observe. Yeah. Good resource for that. Uh, maybe Shannon, I'm not sure if you were going for this as well, might be, uh, the sky and telescope Mars profiler. So somebody just simply, uh, Google's, uh, sky and telescope or S and T Mars profiler, then you're going to uh, land on the Mars profiler page. And I think you have to scroll down and hit a link, and then it's just a pop-up window um, for your day and time that will show you uh, what Mars actually looks like there. Yeah, that's perfect. Uh, I'm really excited. Uh, to, I haven't seen an occultation of Mars uh, by the moon before. I've seen one um, of, of all the major planets except for Mars, so I'm uh, pretty excited. But well, I guess Mercury, too, I haven't seen. Um, but, uh, this, this one should be really neat, uh, especially considering it's, uh, you know, it's, it's going to be on the opposition night. And, uh, like you were saying, Shane, uh, these clouds on Mars right now are very easy to see. In fact, I've had a couple listeners, uh, write in and say, Hey, uh, I, I saw this, is this a cloud? And yeah, absolutely. You are seeing clouds on the surface of another planet. And, uh, people are pretty tickled when, uh, when I tell them, cause right now those, uh, those clouds in the uh, in the North Polar Hood region. I mean, they are uh, they're the first thing that I saw the last two nights when I was observing it. Yeah, yeah, because it's such a contrast. Like Mars is a very orange orange colored uh, object to look at. In fact, mm -hmm. even naked eye, it's very apparent that it's orange. And through a telescope, that white against the orange is a very stark contrast. So it really jumps out at you. Mm -hmm. 
We did an episode on observing Mars uh, a few weeks back. Can't remember uh, which one it was. I think maybe even been a month ago. Um, but if people go back through our back catalog at the actualastronomy.com website, uh, you can actually find it there. Moving ahead to uh, December 14th, we're going to have the uh, Gemini meteor shower peak. But, uh, you know, Shane, we're, we're a couple nights uh, prior to the uh, you know last quarter moon. So the moon is going to be in the sky. Um Around midnight is when uh, is when you want to go out and take a look at these meteors. But uh, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm a little bit skeptical that it's going to be much of a show this year because of that moon being being in the uh, in the late evening sky. Yeah, the moon really can wash out the sky, and what I mean by that is the brightness of the moon can make some of these objects difficult to see. And, um, you know, a meteor shower is one of them. And if you, even if you leave your light polluted city or town or wherever you might live, and if you get to a dark location, that much moon will probably mean you're just not going to see that many meteors because the moon is just too much, uh, too much light. It's too bright. Yeah. The one thing I've, I've read about the Geminids though, is that sometimes that peak can be more around like the midnight hours. So um, I didn't look when the moon actually rises that night, but you might, you might be able to get some good views between like 11 and, and, uh, 1230, uh, overnight, maybe on the 13th, 14th, 14th, 15th, uh, just, just go out and try those nights. If you have to be free, maybe, uh, you're taking an extended, uh, holiday vacation or something like that and find yourself in a dark location. Uh, that could be uh, a good way to, uh, to try to get a, get a view of these. And, you know, the Geminids aren't that old uh, a meteor shower. You know, they only kicked up in the mid-1800s. You know, they were only noted for the first time. And uh, they've been picking up during the first years. Like, they were only seeing, like, uh, a dozen or so meteors per hour. Uh, but now at the peak, uh, they're coming out at 120 meteors per hour that have been seen, eh? Yeah, and 120 per hour is a very uh, high rate of meteors. So, um, you know, that that can be quite the show when it when it peaks at that level. yeah. Yeah, just looking really quick here, I see that 9 to 10 p.m. is when you might start noticing uh, some of these. So if you do go in that late evening um, before the moon comes up, uh, you might get a chance at, uh, at, seeing, uh, at seeing a few of these. So would be uh, would be pretty interesting to take a look. So where should they look? What is the radiant and what does it have to do with uh, Gemini and why are they called the Geminids, Shane? Yeah, any any meteor shower is typically named from the radiant point uh, or, or the nearest constellation of the radiant point. So if you look towards Gemini, uh, that's where you'll see uh, the Geminids emanating from. However, with any meteor shower, pretty much if you're just looking up at the sky, if there's any meteors to be seen, you're going to see them. Comes from an interesting object. I was just looking at this. I think it's P H A E T H O N. Is it Phaethon? Something like that, or Pathon? Yeah, yeah. I think I think that's how I would pronounce it. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I, it's all Greek to me. Um, but anyway, this this object apparently is a dead comet uh, or some new type of asteroid, and it's got this highly elliptical orbit around the sun, and uh, perhaps it gave off all the material. It doesn't sport a cometary tail anymore. Um, and the spectrum looks like uh, some sort of rocky asteroid, but that's where the, uh, the material has been uh, spouting off from it. Uh, it's an orbit, uh, that only takes like one and a half years to go around the center, just slightly less. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's where the material is coming from. So kind of an interesting uh, origin story there. Yeah, that is. Last quarter moon is on uh, the 16th of December. And then on the 21st of December, this one could be uh, pretty interesting. I'm going to try to take a look for this. Um, in the evening sky on December 21st, uh, Mercury is going to be at its greatest eastern elongation, 20 degrees from the sun. So for, forget all that. That's too complicated. Um, what you're going to do is you're going to find the southwest point. You're going to want to make sure that the sun has fully set. So get your uh, sunset time at about 10 or 15 minutes to that. And then the sky is going to be reasonably dark enough, but it's still going to be uh, a little little bit bright in the westerly uh, direction and just left of where the sun uh, has set you're going to see a bright star right at the horizon and that's not a star that's venus and just about uh, six or seven degrees above and to the left is going to be mercury so that would be a good time to actually take a shot at trying to see mercury through a telescope 
Yeah. Yeah. And Mercury, um, it's a challenging planet to see because it's often very close to the horizon because it follows the sun and it's very close to the sun in its orbit. Um, so it is challenging. Mm -hmm. um, now, again, just to set some expectations, uh, if you do go out to observe Mercury, don't expect necessarily to see any kind of surface detail or anything of that nature. Um, it's quite small of a planet and it's quite a ways away. Um, I think some people have reported seeing some slight variations on the surface, but it's, um, it's an object to observe more. So just to say you've observed Mercury, uh, similar to like a Pluto observation, you're, you're mm -hmm. really not going to see much there. Yeah. I, I've been able to do some sketching of it and it is, um, transient at best mm -hmm. <laughs> to say you're, you're only just going to get these flickers. Um, you know, we were talking about observing Mars last night through okay observing conditions and how difficult it was to pull out some details. Well, I, I would say you can amplify the atmospheric uh, disturbance closer to the horizon mm -hmm. um, to say it's uh, it's probably uh, more than 100 times uh, more difficult to see anything on uh, on Mercury than it is on Mars. So if people are really looking to see some surface detail on something, uh, go and check out Mars. And if you just want to even spot Mercury uh, December 21st, just after sunset, um, you're going to look towards the southwest. You'll see Venus and just above and to the left of Venus is going to be Mercury. Yeah, perfect. December 21st, that's the uh, solstice. Uh, can't really see anything that's going to tell you the solstice so much, though. Uh, so that's just when we mark the uh, the average shortest day of the year. I always like to say that because, of course, the uh, earliest or the latest sunrise, the earliest sunset uh, varies uh, a, a couple weeks on either side of that date. But that's just sort of like the average uh, of, of those and it creates the shortest day ish of the year. Yeah. Yeah. I always like to have salsa on the solstice. All right. Moving on <laughs> December 22nd, the Ursid meteor shower peak. Um, I, I don't know that I've ever gone out and looked for the Ursid meteors, but I've certainly seen them. Have you ever gone and looked for that one? No, it's, it's a, a much lesser known meteor shower and, and certainly doesn't receive the fanfare of the Perseids or the Geminids, but, um, you know, there's I, maybe an interesting side note about this is there's a number of meteor showers throughout the year. So if mm -hmm. meteor showers are something you're interested in, um, it's worth doing an internet search just to get a schedule of when they're all visible. And, and then if you plan it around new moon, so when there's no moon in the sky, that's mm -hmm. the best time to observe any of these, uh, showers. Yeah. So the Ursids, um, they, they appear to come out of, uh, more or less out of the constellation Ursa Minor. Most people are familiar with the Big Dipper pattern. Well, there's a Little Dipper pattern as well that's just above uh, that and, and right on almost the north uh, pole part of the sky. And this meteor shower begins around the 17th and runs until Boxing Day or the 26th of December. And uh, yeah, usually what's happened for me is um, sometimes uh, if I've had some days off around Christmas, I know like when I was at university and... Uh, you know, I'd be home for the holidays and uh, not really have much planned. And sometimes, you know, a lot of my friends that are away or spending time with family and that. And I'm just like, hmm, I get some time on my hands. Remember one year it was really warm, so I couldn't be uh, doing the other things I, I would typically be doing on those days off. And I end up just uh, observing all night a few nights and seeing all kinds of meteors. And uh, yeah, you can see like, uh, like sometimes up to a dozen or so meteors an hour. So it can be... Uh, can be kind of a fun uh, affair to get out. So probably discovered in uh, in around the middle of the 20th century. I think the the best night was uh, was observed by uh, Dr. A. Beckvar, who for those that are that are really paying attention to the actual astronomy podcast will know that uh, Beckvar created the uh, the Atlas of the Heavens, which is a beautiful uh, sky atlas. Um, that was made, uh, I think, around the mid 50s. I have a copy of that. And he recorded 169 meteors per hour in 1945. Um, comes from 8P Tuttle, which is a comet that's in orbit around our solar system. And uh, what's neat is I've I've gone and observed that comet a couple times, Shane, as, as it makes its way around the solar system. I'm not sure if you've ever seen that one, but it's kind of neat to be able to say that you've seen the comet and then you've seen the meteors come streaking through our sky, which are part of that comet. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, and maybe again, just a side note is, um, 
you know, these meteor showers are created by the remnants of comets that have flown through the solar system and just happen to be on the same plane as the Earth's orbit. So as mm -hmm. the Earth travels through this sort of debris field that the comet has left behind, uh, that matter burns up in our atmosphere and creates what we call meteors or meteor showers. And um, often what is burning up is is like grains of sand, like it's quite small matter. Mm -hmm. uh, you may see what is commonly referred to as a fireball, which is like a very bright streak, a very bright meteor. And those can be the size of um, anything from maybe a cherry up to like a baseball size sort of mm -hmm. uh, um, debris thing. So, so uh, very interesting. And, and uh, it is cool to, like you say, be able to observe the comet that left this debris uh, field uh, to cause meteor showers. December 23rd, we have a new moon. So this is actually a really good uh, opportunity for those that might have some time off uh, for holidays. Uh, in the December period, um, you'll be able to uh, maybe get out to a dark sky location and really be able to uh, to enjoy that and see some maybe deep sky objects or at least see these planets lining up. On December 24th, we have Venus and Mercury um, and the moon in this triangle on the southwest horizon. Sheen, I put a graphic in there. Um, Mercury sort of is, is the peak of this uh, sort of uh, flatter, maybe isosceles triangle. And on the right um, bottom, we have Venus. And on the left bottom, we have the moon. Um, they're going to be, maybe the whole thing is going to stretch about eight or nine degrees. And I'm hoping to get that in my wide field binoculars and to be able to see the moon, Mercury and Venus all in one go. I think that would be a really spectacular sight. Yeah, that would be amazing. So just after sunset on the 24th, again, wait till the sun goes down, add about 15 or 20 minutes just so the sky is getting dark. Um, you don't want to look anywhere near the sun, of course. Um, you want to make sure the sun is well below the horizon. Um, make sure that you're you're never, ever looking at the sun. That's always like our, our catchphrase when it comes to these sort of things. And, and as well, um, when the sun is up or anywhere close to being up, the sky is going to be too bright. So you want the sky to be darkening down a little bit. So for us, this is going to be about 40 minutes after sunset. And uh, we're going to have a pretty good view of Mercury, Venus, and the moon together in the sky forming this really cool triangle. Be a great shot for some budding astrophotographers out there, I think. Yeah, yeah. When you get those close pairings, they are quite pretty. December 26th, we have the moon just four degrees south of Saturn. So that's going to be another neat pairing. I put that in. So it's sort of, for us, it's going to be uh, southeast of Saturn. So by about seven degrees, I think it's not as close for us, but if you're east of us, if you're over in uh, Eastern North America on the East coast, or maybe over in Britain uh, and you're up early in the morning or like sort of middle of the night or whatever, uh, you're going to see the, the moon and Saturn a little bit closer together in the sky. December 29th, though, that is when Mercury and Venus are going to be at their closest point. This one is interesting, Shane, because we have two things on the night of December 29th. Um, and this is a great opportunity for, for those who are um, able to get out in the early evening. So it's an easy time when people are around. Um, even if you have plans that night, or maybe you don't, it's going to be uh, around the dinner time hour, but it's uh, not like a late night event, but we're going to have um, two sets of pairings. Mercury and Venus are just 1.4 degrees apart. I think for us, they're a little bit further, um, but they're very, very close to like a degree and a half separation. And that means that through um, smaller backyard telescopes, typically telescopes that are going to be uh, eight inches or smaller in size. And like Shane was saying, we use uh, three and four inch uh, telescopes mostly be able to see Mercury and Venus together in the same telescopic field of view. Yeah. Yeah. That is super cool when you can see um, two planets in a, a telescope field of view, because telescopes, the, 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 they typically don't have as wide a field of view as a camera or binoculars. So mm -hmm. when they're that close, um, definitely make a point of trying to observe them. And it's going to be neat because these planets are inferior planets. We're not taking anything away from Mercury and Venus. doesn't mean they're any lesser than the rest of the planets. They're just inside of us on the racetrack or the record of the solar system. That's what makes them inferior. But because of that, just like when the moon is on the inside track of the solar system from the Earth, 
we see it as a crescent phase. So you will actually see these planets not as circles, but you'll see them as crescents. Or some, they're going to look more like little moons in the sky, really, is what they're going to look at through the telescope. All right, December 30th, there is a double shadow transit on mm -hmm. Jupiter. However, we don't get to see it, Shane. <laughs> you have to, I think you have to be in Japan. But we, oh, do okay. have, we do have people in Japan that listen to the show yep. and that write us on a semi-regular basis. So I'm hoping, I think, uh, the person who usually writes us over there, I'm hoping that, that, that maybe they take, uh, take a look and can let us know. Moving on, we have a bright comet, though. There's a, there's a comet coming. Um, it's going to peak out in January, but you were saying that by the end of December, it's going to be about seventh magnitude. Uh, maybe just tell us a little bit about that, Shane, where we can see it. Yeah, so this is Comet uh, C2022 dash E as in Edward 3 ZTF. Um, right now it's about magnitude 10 or 11. It should get to magnitude 9 in December. And then, like you said, Chris, by the end, the forecast right now is about magnitude 7. But what is really exciting about this comet is the forecast into January says magnitude five. Now, magnitude five is a very bright comet. You know, that is now uh, a comet that you, you could probably see without any optical aid. You just need your eyes. You may need to get to a darker sky out of light pollution, but uh, these don't happen all of the time. So if this comet reaches the forecasted brightness, this might be one that you hear about on the news and in the media because it could be quite amazing. Now, we always have fine print when we talk about potentially bright comets. Yeah, what does it say down there? Oh, <laughs> yeah. it's hard to read. Yeah. The, the fine print says uh, this may not, the, the, the forecast may not happen at all uh, because comet, comets are highly variable um, and they're very difficult to predict uh, their brightness. Now, what can happen is, uh, you know, as they brighten, they're, they're getting brighter because they're um, becoming closer to earth. It's apparent magnitude, but also because they're getting closer to the sun. And um, as they get too close to the sun, sometimes they'll break up or even be pulled into the sun just by the gravity there. Um, so we never really know how bright a comet will get until it happens, but this one is looking super promising. Um, and a neat thing to do with comets is to observe them as many nights as you can, because they do change, uh, quite a bit over time. And again, during this brightening period where they get closer to the sun, uh, they can change a lot just night by night, uh, even sometimes change from the start of the night by, uh, until the end of the night. So, uh, definitely put this one on your list if you're uh, a comet observer or enjoy observing comets. And, um, you know, if this one does get as bright as people are hoping, uh, we could be in for a real treat. Then there's another one you were saying, uh, ZTF V2 or V2 ZTF? Yeah, so this one is... Um, around magnitude nine this month. And, uh, that isn't super bright. Like you definitely would need a, a telescope or binoculars to see this. Um, and it's not at that level right now. It looks like it's around magnitude 11 to 12. Um, but if it hits magnitude nine in December, um, that could be, uh, an interesting comment to look at as well. Mm -hmm. Sounds good. So these, these are ZTF comets, stands for the Zwicky Transient Facility, which is a, uh, a wide field astronomical survey that's being conducted uh, down in Palomar uh, Observatory in California. So it's kind of neat that it's uh, sweeping up some of this stuff. I hadn't heard of these ZTF comets before, um, but uh, yeah, looking forward to hopefully uh, capturing a few of these uh, myself. So Shane, maybe we'll talk uh, briefly about uh, Orion a little bit because, you know, when I think about doing astronomy uh, at, at the holiday season, and uh, I think about when I got my first pair of binoculars and Terrence Dickinson's Nightwatch uh, for Christmas back, you know, many years ago now, uh, the first thing I did was take them out and think, what the heck am I going to look at? And I don't know about you, but uh, the first thing I looked at and, and identified um, was the Orion Nebula through those binoculars. And I couldn't believe I was seeing the star forming region uh, in the nighttime sky. Yeah, it's an incredible constellation. There's a lot of different objects to look at within Orion. 
Um, and, and just the constellation itself is very uh, prominent. I think most people uh, in the Northern Hemisphere are very familiar with the belt of Orion, three bright stars. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of cool things to look at. And what's really neat about Orion, or, or many things are neat about it, but one thing that I really appreciate is uh, the great Orion Nebula M, uh, M42, Messier 42, um, is even quite nice from a light-polluted city. Like, it is mm-hmm. so bright. Uh, if you have a telescope or binoculars, it's a neat thing to look at even from your backyard. Yeah, maybe we'll talk about how to find them here in a second. But Orion is one of the brightest and probably... Uh, you know, among the best known constellations of the winter sky, at least here in North America. Mm-hmm. Of course, in the Southern Hemisphere, it, Orion sort of stands on his head. I know when um, we get emails from observers down in the in the Southern Hemisphere, and they always send me, they always love sending me photos of Orion with uh, like a beautiful uh, backdrop of a hillside or trees or, or a city skyline or something. And, um, you know, Orion's on his head because, uh, you know, the, the sky is going to be upside down from there. But the, uh, the upper part of Orion lies in the Milky Way, and much of the Milky Way runs through Orion, and that's why we have the Great Orion Nebula there. So you can see Orion really well in the winter sky, and it, uh, it's a constellation that has traveled with us through history and mythology. And Orion was seen uh, by the Greek astronomer Ptolemy um, and identified in his Almagest that was published in the 2nd century AD. And... Uh, it may have even been recorded earlier in some of the works, uh, like the Tablets of the Mall Appen and some of the other uh, earlier works. And it may even have been depicted in the cave paintings of Lascaux, which they date back to about 15,000 BCE. Um, but, you know, it really comes down to how easy it is to identify uh, this constellation. And there's a few key stars. The bright orange star that we see, which is on Orion's right shoulder, but we see it on to our left uh, of Orion, is Betelgeuse. And Shane, I don't know if you remember this, about three years ago, Betelgeuse was pulsating mm-hmm. in the nighttime sky, and it had dimmed way, way down. Yeah, it's um, it's a very interesting variable star. So anybody not familiar with that term, a, a variable star will change its brightness over a period of time. Some of them are very repeatable. Some of them are more erratic. And uh, this one, when when Betelgeuse was going through this period a couple of years ago, it, it really drew the attention of a number of astronomers because mm-hmm. people weren't sure what was going on. Uh, there was speculation that it would go uh, supernova because... Yeah. It is a old star and a lot of old stars at the end of their life will uh, offload a lot of mass and go nova or supernova. So there was a lot of intrigue and then it just basically returned back to its normal brightness. And I think what was found out and, you know, I don't know if you... Uh, can confirm this or not, Chris, but I, I think what, what it was, was there's some interstellar dust or debris or yeah. something that sort of went in front of Betelgeuse to yeah. cause this perceived dimming from earth, but the star itself wasn't really changing its brightness. Yeah. Um, and I think I just read recently, Chris, um, that it's going through another weird phase where it's uh, hitting some magnitudes that were unexpected. So I'm not sure mm. what's going on. Yes, yeah, definitely something to keep keep your eye on. This is one of those things where you don't need a telescope to see uh, Betelgeuse. You just need a decent star chart. Like we said, uh, you get Terrence Dickinson's Nightwatch uh, or you get uh, another entry-level astronomy book and you look up Orion in there, it's going to talk about Betelgeuse. It is a variable star, like Shane was saying. It it varies um, over a period of several years, um, but then there's some other uh, activity going on with that. How do you find, when you go to look at something like the Orion Nebula, well, first, Shane, right off, what is the Orion Nebula, and uh, why is it why is it so neat to look at? So the Orion Nebula is a very large area of uh, star birth, essentially. Um now there's a lot of gas uh, that's illuminated there. So it looks like a ominous cloud almost through a telescope. It's wispy. There's um, a lot of uh, kind of shape and detail there, but in the middle of this nebula is a star birth region. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's churning out some, some brand new stars essentially. Yep. And so for me, um, when I go to find it, I find the easiest thing to do. And and the way that I found it originally was um, almost, well, it was really by accident because I went out and I sort of was somewhat familiar with Orion, but now I had a proper star chart 
and I had a little red flashlight I cobbled together and I had my new binoculars and I'd gone out and I thought, oh, I'll, I'll look at Orion's belt. I kind of know that. And then I remember I was looking at the belt and I handed the binoculars to my friend and, and he looked at the belt and as he sort of brought the binoculars down, he kept like looking through them and he scanned over the Orion Nebula and he's like, whoa, I think I just saw the Orion Nebula. And I said, let me see. And so I grabbed the binoculars back and then found the belt and then I scanned just below the belt with the binoculars. And uh, yeah, very easily you can see uh, what's called the Sword of Orion, which is a big line of vertical stars, uh, like a big group of stars. And almost right in the center, sort of like the bottom center of that, is this giant glowing uh, gas cloud that's actually creating stars. And you can actually look at it in real time just through a pair of binoculars, even from most cities. Yeah, yeah, it's a great object to look at if you've never seen it. There's some more difficult stuff to see up there. One of the things that people are going to be maybe even more familiar with is, in a way is a little bit unfortunate is the Horsehead Nebula. Mm -hmm. That is not something that you're going to be able to see in your binoculars, is it, Shane? <laughs> no, the Horsehead Nebula is exceptionally challenging uh, to see visually, for sure. Uh, most of the... Um, uh, images that people are familiar with are long exposure astrophotography uh, that's able to produce these beautiful uh, images of the Horsehead Nebula. And what's kind of neat about the Horsehead Nebula is it's actually uh, like a dark nebula. So it doesn't emit light and it sort of blocks light, but it's in the shape of a horse head. Um, and it, it is a very neat object. And, and while I say it's, it's very difficult to see visually, um, there's a number of astronomers that have seen it. So if you're interested in a challenge object, this is one to put on your list. And it is very difficult to see. I've seen it in my, my little telescopes. I've seen it in big telescopes. But we had an email from our, our listener, Wade, who's uh, down in the Southern Hemisphere. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, he's down in Australia. I should have put that in the notes. Yeah, I think and, so. And he recently was able to see this through... Uh, a person's 20-inch uh, Skywatcher motorized Dobsonian with a hydrogen beta filter. And, uh, and he was invited by this other observer to, uh, to go and take a look. And he writes, I, I climbed the stepladder and there it was, faint and upside down, but very clearly there. On my first look, I was occasionally and briefly able to make out the nose and mouth area. And on my second and third look, it all blended together into one solid dark nub protruding and blocking out the slightly brighter background nebula. It was a challenge to try and pick out detail, and I believe I rapidly fatigued my eye trying to make out uh, any of the view. The icing on the cake for me was that it happened to be using um, just a regular um, you know, zoom eyepiece. It was just, just a regular eyepiece that um, this observer also had. I've also considered it to be a, uh, you know, a great solar system uh, uh, eyepiece and uh and if it can show the horse head as well you know it's such a bonus so he goes on to say this was an object i need to be very challenging and had accepted that i would probably never see it for myself um so it was an amazing treat and uh i feel very fortunate to have had the opportunity and uh wade wishes us all the best and clear skies so yeah we appreciate that observation wade and it just goes to show you know um it is easier to see some of these things through larger telescopes. But then the thing that I've always noticed, Shane, is that once you've seen it through a larger telescope or maybe even your own telescope at a darker sky, a better sky, it can become subsequently easier to see these things in smaller and smaller telescopes or maybe skies that aren't as good. Yeah, that, that goes for a number of these challenge objects. Like once you see it, um, your brain just kind of gets trained to see it again. And even if you've seen it in a large telescope, sometimes, yeah, smaller telescopes still reveal it because you just know what to look for and how to observe it. All right. Well, Shane, do you have anything uh, to add for anything to take a look at in Orion? I'll throw maybe just a, a couple double stars out there. Okay. Um, so double stars are um, usually like two to three, maybe even more stars that are, uh, gravitationally interacting upon each other and can uh, be really neat objects to observe for a number of reasons. One is you can do the, or you can observe these from light polluted areas and it doesn't really matter. So mm -hmm. they're great from the backyard. 
Um, sometimes they form some interesting patterns, which is neat to observe. But what one of the things that really appeals to me is that uh, you can sometimes see some really good coloration within the stars. And because they're often very close to each other, uh, you get a really neat contrast between the colors and, and the star color becomes a little easier to discern. Mm-hmm. So a few to look at here in Orion. Um, the first one that I'll mention is uh, Mintaka, which is uh, if you're looking at the belt of Orion, the three stars, it's the one on the far right-hand side. Um, it's very easy to split these. It's a very wide separation here. Um, the primary star is is kind of white. Um and I'm so also maybe what I'll say is this is on the uh, uh, Royal Astronomical Society of Canada. This is their double star list. And uh, just reading the notes here, primary is white, a little yellow. The next star is a medium blue. So very cool. Again, when you get these stars of differing colors that close, uh, the the star color really jumps out at you. Mm-hmm. Um, so that one is kind of neat. And then maybe uh, uh, the other one here that I'll talk about is within M42, within that beautiful nebula is what's called the trapezium. And there's a number of stars in the heart of that nebula that are uh, all sort of gravitationally interacting upon each other. So it's quite stunning. These stars are very bright. Um, Now there's about four stars in the middle that are pretty easy. It's the A, B, C, and D stars of this, uh, of this grouping. They're, they're pretty easy to see with any kind of telescope. Uh, there's the E and the F stars. They're much more challenging. Uh, you need really good sky conditions, good seeing usually to pull those out. Um, and then there's even a, an additional one. It's uh, MZA16, uh, which is there. I've never seen that one. Um, that one would be a very, or, you know, that one could probably be put onto the challenging uh, list. Mm-hmm. Um, but those are just a few doubles in Orion. There's a lot more. Uh, like, is it Macy? The, uh, I think that's the name star that's at the head of Orion. Uh, that's another double. Um, anyway, that's, there's, no, go I was going to say that's Lambda Orionis to me. Oh, <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 Lambda. Yeah. It, it's a beautiful double as well. Yeah. Um, and if you're interested in observing double stars, definitely take a look at Orion. There's a number of other ones out there, um, that are really pretty to look at, but it's, I'll wrap it up there. Well, thanks, Shane, and thanks, everybody, for listening. We're always excited to get listener questions or your observing logs as we're collecting those uh, to do for a future episode. You can always email us at actualastronomy at gmail.com. And if you look us up in your podcast directory, you can check us out at the Actual Astronomy Podcast. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com.